Hello, I'm Liz Jones. If you read my diary in the Mail on Sunday's You magazine, then you'll know me and my life pretty well. But if you've always wanted to know more, this is the place for you. Welcome to Liz Jones's Diary, the podcast. I'll be taking you behind the scenes of this week's column before digging back into the archives to find some of the most shocking and hilarious stories from the last 20 years. I'll be doing all this with the help of my assistant, friend and confidant, Nick. Hello. Hello, everyone. It's Liz and Nick again. How are you, Nick? Oh, well, Martin, who didn't give me a birthday present, and he didn't give me a Valentine's Day present, has given me bloody COVID. So he's given me something at last. It was an accident waiting to happen. It was. So so I've got something from Martin at last, just not quite what I had in mind. I think I'd have preferred flowers, so thanks, chum. But I have got... I've got I have got a really good Miranda Priestley moment for this week. This was just before you got COVID. It was before I got COVID and and I and I actually was going to tell everyone about it last week and I forgot because we were in, in COVID's field and we were talking about other stuff. But before I got COVID, Liz and I went and had a cup of coffee and we were <laughs> so funny. We were sitting in the coffee shop and this poor woman was already a bit distressed about vegan and blah, blah, blah. So poor her. Why was she stressed out? Why was the waitress stressed out? Because I was out? going through the menu torturing her what I could have on my jacket potato, wasn't I? I ended up becoming oh, right, chappy. Okay. So Liz, Liz wanted a scone, but she said, have you got scones without sultanas? So the woman said, no, we've got scones with sultanas, scones with blueberries, and stones raspberries. So Liz is like, no, I want a plain scone. So no, we haven't got a plain scone. We've got these. Liz, no, I want a plain scone. So in the end, Liz said, <laughs> Liz said, okay, I'll have the scone with sultanas, but can you pick them out for me? <laughs> so the woman said, but I don't, th- I don't think that's an extreme demand. <laughs> All she needs is a pair of tweezers. So she said. No, I'm a bit busy. You'll have to pick them out yourself. But I just had this vision of this poor woman in the kitchen with your scone, with tweezers, pulling out pulling out your sultanas. Yeah, go above and beyond. You're in a service industry. I don't like sultanas. I don't like dried fruit of any description. You can't ask pick the waitress to pick your sultanas out. I can. Very Miranda Priestley. I can. <laughs> but yeah, I, I wanted everyone to know about that because that was the highlight of my week. Well, the highlight of my week, well, it's not really a highlight, it sort of brought up some sort of memories, is that this week it's the 60th anniversary of the very first breast implant. Can you believe that? So 60 years ago... Two male surgeons, it had to be men, didn't it, decided that they needed to change women's bodies. You know, so it was 1962. You know, in the 60s, we had legalised abortion, the contraceptive pill, women not having to dress like their mothers, women not being sacked when they got married. They gave us the breast implant. And it's it's the most 
common form of cosmetic surgery. Millions of women have had it. And this woman was the first woman to get it, and she's about to be 90. So isn't it interesting to think, what does a 90-year-old woman look like with breast implants? And, of course, we all know, and I've written about this in the Daily Mail this weekend, we all know that I had the opposite, a breast reduction. But the... The reason I had a breast reduction was a cover line on L, which said French women are getting breast reduction so they look better in jackets. So I thought, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And there was a picture of Yasmin Le Bon looking very flat-chested. So I thought, I want to be like Yasmin Le Bon. But other young women who I spoke to this week, they have different role models where they have these perfectly buoyant, spherical breasts and they think it's empowering, you know. So I've, I've written a piece saying, well, actually, you're mutilating your body. And it's a bit like foot binding, really. And I wish I'd had some sort of counselling because I was 29 when I had the operation. Why, why don't we get counselling before we make these sort of decisions? Because it's, it's irreversible, really. Even if you think, well, I've had a breast augmentation I can have them taken out you've still got scarring you're still interfering with your body um and I just it's the huge industry to make women feel they're not good enough and my entire life since I was about five I would say when I looked in my mum's dressing table mirror and I decided my profile was too flat I've hated my body you know, the beauty industries, the cosmetics industry, the fashion industry, they make money out of us feeling that we're not good enough. If we think we're amazing and we're fine, we're not going to spend money on stuff, are we? We're not going to have procedures, we're not going to buy new clothes, we're not going to buy face cream. No. And, and I, I, think, I think people underestimate how susceptible young women are. For me, having my breasts cut off, it was one headline and one picture. So that tells you, and look at how many pictures women are looking at now on Instagram, that millions and millions and millions, all hours of the day and night. It's just, I just think it's tragic. I think what saddens me is women putting themselves through really painful and potentially dangerous procedures. Really dangerous, really dangerous. You know, it, it's it's so upsetting to them, or so difficult for them, or they, you know, they want to achieve something by the way they look. And you know, for me, so I mean, I, I'm a hypocrite because I've I've had surgery, I had a tummy tuck, I it was the most painful, awful experience of my life. But I would do it again tomorrow. It changed my life. So I completely understand where they're coming from when when it's something that really psychologically is difficult for you. I completely understand it. But how sad that we're in a society where we are so concerned with how we look or we feel it's so important that we would put ourselves voluntarily on an operating table and have ourselves cut open and bits of us removed or bits added just to look better. I think I, I think if we just stop and think about that for a minute, it's really awful, isn't it? I mean, and I've done it, so I'm not criticising anyone for it, but isn't it awful that we feel like that? 
No, and I think, you know, it's very easy to criticise celebrities or ordinary women who have it done and think it's sort of vanity and it's frivolous and to criticise the women on Love Island who, who have all this fake stuff. But it's not really vanity, I think. It's desperation. We're so desperate to fit in and be acceptable and look like someone we've seen in a magazine or look like someone we've seen on television. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I had my breast surgery, I really felt I couldn't go on living no. with the breasts I had. I felt that I had... It was, it, was a, it was a life or death thing. And I think a lot of women do yeah. feel like that. But the thing is, we're brainwashed. Yeah. And I really and I wish I hadn't... Anyone. I really wish I hadn't done it because even then I wasn't happy with it because I had these terrible scars and I've got this yeah. puckering. I've got no sensation in them. I c couldn't breastfeed. Not that I had children, but, you know, I think part of me not having children was I never wanted to get naked because someone would see all the scars. So it, in a way, I felt it was my daughter happiness but yeah it ruined my life yeah I mean I've got a scar from hip to hip and it's been like the bikini line I presume I mean I've never had a cesarean I presume it's sort of along the same lines as that and I I don't care who sees that the tummy tuck was so worth it I I would I would still if I had the figure for it wear a bikini I I've got a scar on my right hand breast where I had a lump removed um a benign lump that went off for a biopsy, a huge scar. He really botched it up. Those things don't bother me, but you can't sort of, when I've got my clothes on, that bag that I had hanging in front of me really showed through it, whereas I can hide the scars. So it's interesting, isn't yeah. it? Because the scars have never, ever been an issue for me because I was so desperate to get rid of that, that thing hanging on the front of me. And it was uncomfortable as well. It's not just how it looks. It was incredibly uncomfortable. You know, it got, it got sore and under the skin. It was a sort of flapper skin. It got sore. It was uncomfortable. And I'd worked so hard to lose six stone. I'd worked so hard. And I thought at the end of it, I'd have this wonderful body. And actually, I had a, I had a really nice little figure. Well, for, I, I was happy with it. It wasn't model perfect, but I was really happy with it except I had this big lump of flabby skin hanging down in front of me and I yeah. couldn't stand it. Yeah. So for me, I the think, scars were worth it. I just think people who have grown up in a protective bubble and they, you know, they look down on women who go on Love Island and they've had all this stuff done, they have to understand that some women are desperate. Yeah. And they think they, you know, they need to look a, a certain way. And in, in a way, this breast augmentation isn't for themselves it's for men mm. and it's for me it was the opposite I didn't like men looking at me so I didn't want any breasts for a lot of women have breast augmentation it's about wanting a man and it's it's like a welcome mat to a man you know hello boys Definitely. and it makes you more feminine it's it makes you softer um because men have found that we've changed we're not little women who stay at home doing the cooking we've got our own careers we've got our own opinions we've got our own money in a way women who have breast augmentation and i'm talking about ordinary women not celebrities because celebrities you know that's fine they do it because that's their 
the body, their body is their career, yeah, yeah. it's their cash cow. You know, they milk their breasts for money. But ordinary women, in a way, they're sort of demeaning themselves because men are sort of frightened of us in a way. And it, it, it is. I think having breast augmentation is like a welcome mat. Hello, boys. You know, I'm, I'm nice. I'm feminine, you know. Yeah. And it's interesting because if you've got naturally big breasts like I have... You know, and I'm not. You know, obviously, the, the more weight I'm carrying, the bigger my boobs are. They they become quite uncomfortable. And and one of the pleasures of me of losing weight is they become smaller and more manageable. I mean, rolling on them in the middle of the night, or someone hiking themselves up in bed by sticking their elbow on your boob as they turn over is not a pleasant experience. Yeah. It's not because real breasts, real big breasts. Don't look like augmented breasts. No, 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 no. Yeah. No, they don't. You know, I've talked in the piece I've written about, you know, when I, I had the breast reduction, I didn't have any breasts, I was like Kate Moss. And then I went backstage and I met a Brazilian supermodel and she had this tiny body and these huge breasts. I thought, oh dear, I've made a mistake. But her body, a tiny body with huge breasts, that does not occur in nature. It just doesn't. No. And so, you know, we're, we're mutilating ourselves... Because we've been brainwashed. There's no, there's no other word for it, I don't think. And yet, conversely, we get very upset when we're judged on the size of our boobs. You know, like, you know, we're, it, we, it's got this stereotypical attitude towards women with big breasts, you know, that they're sort of bouncy, flirty, up for it. You, you, you get treated differently. I've, I've certainly noticed that, you know, from being big or yeah. having big boobs. And I'm not conscious of my boobs, you know, I'll get a push-up bra and a low-cut, t- I don't care. Yeah, people people think... But don't judge me. They can joke about them, they think it's comical. You know, it's... it's buckle off, really. I've actually you know, had people come do we, and When do we me? joke... A, we don't joke about men in the street, do we, about no. their bodies? No, but I've actually, you know, sort of been out in a pub or something like that and had men come up behind me, stick their hands on my boobs and jiggle them around uh, and actually, get off, don't touch my boobs. How would you like me to cup your I testicles? I hope you punch them. I, 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 it was a, literally a question of you don't take your hands off my boobs or I will break your arm and I will twist your testicles and insert them up your nostrils. Yeah. yeah I mean, don't touch me just because they're protruding from my body and I think you know it's like being pregnant isn't it don't touch my stomach because I'm pregnant don't touch my boobs because they're big don't touch me I hate people touching me it's absolutely outrageous no I, I don't like people think touching me I don't no but it's just like an invitation isn't it you know there you go I've got big boobs put your hands on them actually no don't I will break your arm I mean, obviously, we do, that doesn't happen so much now. Has anyone done that to you recently? That was what I was going to say. Well, um, I think, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, when I was out with a group of Martin's friends, one of one of his friends sort of, like, jiggled me boobs. And, and I know him, and it, you know, so it didn't really bother me in the same way as it would a stranger. And let's face it, I'm older, less attractive, and, and I'm probably not going to get jiggled anyway. But I think the environment nowadays is is it's very clear that's just not acceptable behaviour. No. It was a different it was a different time even ten years ago, wasn't it? People would behave completely. You could wolf whistle a woman without getting your head bitten off. Well, no one's ever been like that to me, really. I think I just give off this vibe of just bugger off, really. 
yeah, you don't get the jiggle, jiggle my boobs vibe. You don't. And I think the trouble is, is because I'm friendly and I joke around, people mistake that for thinking that, that being inappropriate is going to be acceptable. And it, it's just not. I might have a sense of humour, but I don't want, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not out there for, for being touched up. It's not actually very comfortable either. If someone starts jiggling your boobs around, it hurts. They're quite sensitive. But no, you definitely give give off the. I, I don't think anyone will consider doing that to you. You've you've got. A well, I got boundary. I got through an entire marriage without taking my top off. Yeah, it's. I find that just really such a shame that you couldn't feel. It just shows really the relationship wasn't right, doesn't it? That, that you couldn't be honest yeah. and, and comfortable with your own husband. I think that's a that's a real sadness. I mean, I, I sort of don't care about me. I go around my stomach hanging out. I mean, and I think that might be because I've been reminding for so long that I just don't care what he thinks. I, I think, you know, you perhaps get to that stage where you just literally don't care. I, I, I don't worry about sucking my gut in or, you know, if my boobs are on my waist, it just doesn't matter anymore. Maybe I need to revisit that. Maybe I need to get a sense of self pride. No, but I think in I think in relationships you should still yeah, care. I think it's yeah. I think, I, think. I, I don't know if it's. I think there's two ways of looking at it. Isn't it? It's nice to be that comfortable with someone, or that the relationship has gone past that point where it matters to you, and maybe that's something you should be questioning. I think it can go sort of either way. There's a line, isn't there, where you're lovely and comfortable, which is great, but there's also a line well, that maybe you shouldn't cross. For food for thought? No, I've, I've, I've always tried to be the best that I can be with whoever I'm with. But is that about Every them day. or about you? Is that about your confidence? And it's your just, that's just how I am. And yeah. I know how critical men are. Yeah, but I'll be honest, my reaction would be look in the mirror yourself, mate. When you start going to the gym, and and you know, do you remember that yeah. opening scene of? Do you remember the opening scene of Bridesmaids? Yeah, I love with that Kristen film. Wiig. Oh, I love that. And film. she wakes up, she wakes up next to that man in his expensive house, and she slides into the bathroom, puts the makeup on, and then gets back into bed and pretends she was asleep. Oh, oh, you just woke me up. I was just having this awful dream. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I don't think it's I've like, ever been bothered with that rubbish. No, maybe you could. I mean, if maybe you've, you could if take you've a, had a good, maybe you could take a little bit more care, Nick. Oh yeah, I mean, I've just, I, I, I've just gone wild. I mean, you're talking about going more Linda McCartney. I am Linda McCartney. <laughs> I literally don't care anymore. <coughs> I mean, I, yeah, I just horses don't care, dogs don't care. It's fine, as long as I don't smell, I'm all right. But you've not, you're still not very well, are you, Nick? You've still got COVID. No, I'm not. I'm not well. I'm not well at all. And the COVID set off my atmosphere. So you haven't been you haven't been chasing my invoices. You've been watching lots of telly. Uh, well, I I can't remember the last time I actually slept. Really, I mean, I doze on and off, but between coffee, you need you neatly avoided that. I did neatly avoid it. I've got brain fog from the COVID. It's very very hard to concentrate. But what I have been watching, well, you know, you love Sex and the City and like they're your friends and you were so pleased when they come back. My one. Oh, they are my friends. Exactly. Well, my friends are the crew of the Starship Enterprise. And I. Yeah, no, I do. I do love Star Trek. Oh, Jean-Luc. I mean, 
Oh, my God. He's just the best captain. Forget Kirk. I'm not interested in Kirk. I don't even... Deep Space Nine doesn't exist. But Jean-Luc is, like, the best captain. And I found... He's very manly, He's isn't very he? Manly and make it so. Make but it does, so. in the new series, does he say make it so? No, but uh, literally at the very, very last episode, and like you wait for the whole series in the very last episode of season two, he actually says engage and he does the finger thing. And you know, I don't react to anything. You know, like I don't get excited. Like if no. something's funny, I don't Nick, laugh. Yeah, Nick's a very strange person. She doesn't find anything funny. She doesn't get excited about anything. Not visibly. She doesn't say... She, you don't say anything's amazing. No, I'm very... Do you? No, I'm not. I'm not very sort of... I don't go over the top about it. I go, you know, even if I think something's really funny, I might be really laughing inside, but my face will be deadpan. And I don't know why, but that's just the way I am. But when John Luke said engage, I literally squealed with excitement. I woke Martin up squealing because I was so excited. I have loved it. I mean, I remember watching it originally. It was on from 87 to 94, and it was seven glorious, glorious seasons. And I think we learned a lot from Star Trek. You know, we had all different races. We had all different species. There was no speciesism. We, they, everyone was sort of like working together. We had, I mean... John Luke was just like amazing, and what I loved about the new series is John is Patrick Stewart, who I love, is a real advocate for pit bulls, and he insisted that the dog in the series had to be a pit bull. So I, I how do you how do you know it's a pit bull? Uh, it, no, it is a pit bull, and, and and I've read about. But how do you know it's a pit because bull? I've read the thing from Patrick Stewart that said that there's facts about the series that said he absolutely insisted it had to be a pit bull. So his number one, which is what he calls the dog, is a pit bull, beautiful dog. So I was like really thrilled about that. And what I like about this series is they've not rehashed. If anyone hasn't seen Picard, but they like Star Trek. Just watch it's fantastic. Yeah, I started to watch it, but he wasn't on a ship. He was just on, on a planet and I wanted him on a no, ship. No, he goes he goes he goes on a ship, it's alright. But what I like about it is we start seeing Does he go, he on, does a go ship? on a ship? Not the Enterprise, but he does go on a ship. But we start seeing like the soft side of him, like the more human side of him about who he really is, not just a starship captain. And there's one particular bit that I really like where he's sitting outside talking to his housekeeper, who's obviously in love with him. And she says to him, why have you chosen to be alone? So he says, that part of me that really wants is the part of me that has to wait in line. So she says, to what? And he says, to duty. I mean, it was just, it was fantastic. So he's not got a wife? No, but he's not, he's not got a partner and they haven't got a puppy together and they're not going on a mini break. No, none of that. He's 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 still he's and he's and another thing he says in that in the series, which I thought was was really profound about since he'd left um, Starfleet, he'd just been waiting to die. And how many people feel like that when they've they've lost their passion or they've stopped doing what they love, that they feel they're just spending time going along so i love that but who could just and i want to it's made me now want to go and do one of the conventions one and be a trekkie 
No, oh. I don't think you've got time for that. No, now. I haven't got time. Right, for so that. should we go to this week's column? But this is the whole point of the podcast. I could go on about Jean Luc Moore and no. his lovely voice no. and and, no. and hollow decks. No, hollow decks. No. Beat me no. up. No, no, go on, stop. Go on, Big go on. stop. Go on. This Sunday, it's Mother's Day. It is. Oh shit! Is Yay. it? Yay! Oh shit! I've, so I've, I don't have I've, a mother. I I don't have a mother because I've got a poor dead mother. Sorry, mum. I forgot. And this column, I I start the column by saying that I get all these emails with the subject header. Do you want to opt out of receiving reminders about Mother's Day? And I wonder if these people think I'll be offended to be reminded of my dear departed mother. Or do they mean that if I'm not a mother myself, I might feel left out, lonely? If that's the case, why not opt me out of Christmas, Easter and half-time mini-breaks? But today, Sunday, I'm going to think about her. Though I do that every time I take a wooden peg off the top of an open packet or write a shopping list. Like my frugal mum, I always write down half a queue, not a whole cucumber. What if it went off? Two toms, two tomatoes. It was only after I left home that I realised eggs didn't come cracked. My mum always bought the cracked eggs because this was cheaper. I would take Sunday to remember her tiny blue eyes, her Mrs Pepperpot grey bum and the way she walked, a pronounced limp until she could no longer walk at all. I remember her in and out of hospital and during what seemed to me, age 10, to be torturous medieval procedures, her neck would be stretched. She was riddled with arthritis. Hello, mummy, I'd say on every Friday evening when I phoned her at the end of a working week, which made my then-husband, who would eavesdrop, accuse me of being posh, which is far from the truth. At least he grew up in a home with central heating. I'm looking at a photo of her now on the worn settee in front of the open fire she cleaned and set, watching the rented TV a ball of wool and knitting needles in her hands. Every jumper I owned was hand-knitted, usually from wool unravelled from an earlier garment. I was ashamed. My jumpers were always bobbly and tufted, given the roughness of her hands from the housework and the cold. In the house I grew up in, there were hooks on the back of the lounge door. This is where we would hang extra layers and coats to shrug on whenever we left the warmth of the fire. In bed, I'd have to swap hands to hold a book, warming the spare between my thighs. Despite her seven children and an obstinate Labrador who would lay claim to the foot of the stairs, meaning she had to step over him and he'd choose that very moment to rise, meaning my mum inadvertently rode him. I never heard her voice or mutter a complaint. I think the reason I never had children was that I didn't want her life, the martyrdom, the worry. Even today, when I arrive anywhere, I'm tempted to call her, let the phone ring three times. I was so terrified on my first day at college, I hesitated on the front doorstep and she saw my face and she said, well, don't go, stay at home. My mum told me, all the time, that everything would turn out okay, that I should be patient. 
But looking at her life, how selfless she was, how hard-working, how kind, I longed for shop-bought cake. We never had shop-bought cake. I know that isn't true. The last ten years of her life were filled with pain. She could no longer move or listen to her beloved wireless because nothing made sense. But she'd make the best of it. Hoisted on some dreadful contraption in her now unrecognisable bedroom, she would say, Wee! Oh, bless her. When I briefly became successful, I tried to buy her happiness. I took her to the ivy, but she would only exclaim at the prices. I take her gifts, only to find them secreted in my bag as I left. I hired a private ambulance to ferry her to stay with me in London. But she didn't want anything fancy, just a ball of wool and perhaps a pair of socks to darn. I've just found the last missive that she wrote just before she had dementia. And it said, I leave a thousand pounds to each of my children. There should be enough left to pay for my funeral and any bills. Furniture to anyone who wants it. Look after each other. Edna. Caring so little for fuss, she didn't even add an X. Oh, my God. Well, that's very to the point, isn't it, bless her? She sounds such a sort of simple person. No airs, no grace. It's just a simple, that's the way it is person. Yeah, she never complained. She was in constant pain. She had to get a bus to go to Sainsbury's and do the shopping for seven children. I mean, I can't even imagine looking after seven children, let alone not doing it with all the mod cons. I I literally... No, we didn't even have a washing... We didn't have a washing machine. And she used to iron the bed linen and our clothes after we'd all gone to bed. She did the ironing in the middle of the night. Did she not get... I mean, seven children, you've got a little army of helpers. Did you not all have jobs? No, I'd never remember doing anything. I never remember her teaching me how to cook or how to iron a tea towel. I only learned that recently. You've got to apply pressure. I didn't know you had to apply pressure. Who irons a tea towel? She, well, she did. Really? She did. Well, I know you wow. wouldn't. Wow. But she did. No, I wouldn't. I don't actually have an iron. No, I've got an iron and I've got an ironing board. No, I've got neither. She was the most amazing selfless woman so kind you know how we bitch about men yeah she never said one negative word about my dad not one do you think that's why i mean your dad was like your mum was such a lovely mumsy mum and your dad was like a proper dad wasn't he? he was sort of very smart very capable they were very happy. Do you think that sort of makes it difficult for you in a way? Because you've got this really high bar when you're comparing relationships, you know, your relationships to your Yeah, family. I mean, my, my dad wasn't perfect. I mean, he was Welsh. He had a temper. He used to go to the pub every night. He liked to flash car. He wore these impeccable suits and impeccable ties and impeccable shirts, and my mum had nothing. But she never complained. No. Ever. She never, ever slagged him off. She never, I, th- I never remember one negative thing that she ever said about my dad. And I think maybe that's where we're going wrong. We're too critical. Yeah. You know? I think that's exactly the point, isn't it? Because if your dad wanted his 
flash car and his nice jacket or whatever, but she was happy to go without or, yeah. or to just have yeah. what she had and didn't make a fuss about it. There's never any conflict, is no. there? There's, you know, it's like constantly, okay, if that's what you want, there's no conflict. But you can only do that, can't you, if there's no resentment about it. I remember come Friday evening, we'd all run out of food and my mum would do what she called a Russian salad. She said, I've got Russian salad tonight and it would just be rice with some peas in it. Yeah. And she always served herself last in case she ran out of food. And how do you not with so many people around the table? Yeah. I mean, that's nine people to feed. I, I honestly think that's probably, apart from my terrible breasts, is why I didn't have children because I didn't want to be a slave like my mum. You can read this week's diary in full in Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Do you know it's the Oscars this weekend? Uh, yes, I do. I like the dresses. I'm, I, I like looking at the dresses. I don't care about anything else. I just want to see what people are wearing. Well, I went to the Oscars in February 2009. Do you want to hear about that? Yep. Yeah. So the Oscars, it was in February 2009. I had to fly... I went business class, which was fantastic. And I was in the next cubicle to Natalie Portman. Are you still there, Nick? Have you died from COVID? No, no such luck. Uh, no, she's beautiful, isn't she, Natalie Portman? Absolutely beautiful. So I was on Virgin in a bed on the way to the Oscars, and I was next to Natalie Portman. Many a man's oh, dream. I was in a bed next to Natalie Portman on Virgin on my way to the Oscars and I peeked over the cubicle to see to see what she was doing and she was watching one of her own films. Why would you do that? Well, I just think that's quite funny. No, I think it's quite funny, but I think by the time you film something, you'd have had enough of it and never want to see it again. It's like eating an apple pie or something you've baked, you eat it, by the time you've cooked it, you don't want it. So I went to the Oscars and I stayed at the Mondrian Hotel. Now, the Mondrian Hotel, everything is white. So your bed's white, the curtains are white, the carpet's white, everything's white. Oh, I love that. And you go up in the lift and there's like a video screen in the lift and all the concierge and the waiters and the clean, everyone's wearing white and god it must be like a thing of fantasy island there's giant plants in the garden and there's a bar in the sky and you order your drink and you can order it's on the menu at the Mondrian, and you can order organic flat rainwater i want that i i so want that isn't that fantastic organic no, flat rainwater does john don't Don Johnson serve it in his white suit. And I was ferried off. I had to go to the Vanity Fair party. And I was ferried off in, a, in an SUV. And actually, because I had so much hair and makeup and costumes and everything before I went, when I got on the S, in the SUV, the man said to me, are you a model? Well, I'll take that. I'll take that. You should have just said yes. I'll take that. Live the dream. Live the dream. Say yes. And you get to the Vanity Fair party and you kind of think it's going to be so glamorous and perfect 
And actually, the woman who did the flowers for the Vanity Fair party had done my wedding and she recognised me and I said, oh, hi. So she did the flowers for my wedding and she did the flowers for the Vanity Fair party and you're standing there with your glass of champagne and then you notice that there's lots of awkwardness. So Kate Winslet was standing by the bar and no one was talking to her and Cameron Diaz was in a corner and she was crying and then... Liv Tyler was arguing with her husband about who should leave to relieve the babysitter. And you realise that these stars are just like everybody else. I think it's really but sad. But it's interesting, yeah. isn't it, that you go to the, the most glamorous party in the world and there's Helen Mirren and Kate Winslet and they're all worried about whether they're strap showing or no one's talking to them and they're pretending to do stuff so they no one notices that no one's talking to them. Yeah, I've done that. I've talked into the mobile phone rather than just sit there on my own and there's not been no one there. Yeah, well it wasn't so much a wasn't so much a mobile phone culture then, so you didn't even have that excuse of fiddling with your phone and answering texts and all that kind of stuff. You're just mm. sort of standing there. And, it, you know, the line of limousines waiting to tip you out onto the red carpet, I mean, I'm sure it could be seen from outer space. And you're all worrying about your outfit and you're standing behind Patrick Swayze and you're all worrying about your Botox. And you kind of think that if you're at the post-Oscars party, these are the happiest people in the world, but they're not. And I kind of... What I've learned from interviewing lots of celebrities and going to these kind of things, that level of success doesn't make you happy because you're always a failure in your own eyes. You're not young enough. You miss getting that part. You know, and you kind of think, when are we ever happy? When are we ever content, happy in our own skin? Do do, do you know what I mean? Probably when you're someone like your mum, yeah, because... When you're pushed, when you're in that environment, the bar's up on everything, isn't it? You're, you're judged yeah. more. You have to look better. You've got to get a better dress. Yeah. You've got to have a better car. You've got to have a better husband. When you're like your mum, you yeah, it's like to pay yourself to. Life is you know, simple. As a writer, you think your pinnacle will come and you get a book published. When the book's published, you think, well, am I going to get a good review? And is it going to be number one on that? There's always another hurdle, another hurdle, another hurdle. Well, you're just propelling you know, yourself just, into this very competitive world. I don't world. know. And, and, you know, going back to the beginning of this podcast, when we talked about 60 years of breast augmentation, um, I bumped into a woman at the party and I said to her, oh, hello, Donatella, how are you? Because I've interviewed Donatella Versace. And she said, oh, no, I'm Faye, I'm Faye Dunaway. So Faye Dunaway was so beautiful. Yeah. If you think of Faye Dunaway in The Thomas Crown Affair, if you think of Faye Dunaway in The Towering Inferno where she's in bed with Paul Newman, even she thought, oh, I've got to do stuff to myself. Yeah. And I, she was the most beautiful woman in the world. It's really sad. I saw a clip of Pamela Anderson today on TV um, doing an interview and I would not have known it was her absolutely would not have known that was Pamela Anderson. I didn't recognise her. What, Baywatch Pamela Anderson? Yeah, I wouldn't have, I would not have recognised her if I hadn't have heard the words Pamela Anderson. No, well, I didn't recognise, I didn't recognise Faye Dunaway. I kept talking to her about the Versace show and she thought I was insane. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, when you fade down away, you sort of expect to be recognised, didn't you? But she was so beautiful. But it's it's the most successful people, the most beautiful people. Nothing's ever enough. Every week, lots of you get in touch, telling me what you think about my life and my decisions. So I think it's only fair that you get to have your say here on the podcast too. If you'd like to get in touch, then go to lizjonesgoddess.com or tweet me at lizjonesgoddess. We've had a couple of positive letters, haven't we, Nick? Do you want to read them out? We have. We have Caroline, uh, who says, Oh, Liz, I cried along with you when listening to your podcast. I saved them to listen to while I work. Oh, my God, I felt the heartbreak for and with you. Well done to Nick for smoothing it over while you composed yourself. Last week on the podcast, I was very down. And, you know... Was. And we had a lot of response to that. People were really sorry to hear you were upset. And anyway, Carolyn goes on. I know social media is good in some ways, i.e. making people aware of animals in need, but in others it causes harm. Not long ago, this is Carolyn, I voiced an opinion about the heartbreaking noise of cows left in a slaughterhouse overnight. People came down on me like a ton of bricks. The comments made me cry, and I didn't sleep for a couple of nights. However... I still will be the voice of the voiceless, no matter what people think of me. On a lighter note, I absolutely love your past podcast. And you and Nick are hilarious. Love your singing too, Liz. Carolyn. No. Now, no. now, no. now. Don't encourage us. She says she loves my singing. No, no, but she's just being nice, isn't she? She, she doesn't really love your singing. No, oh, for God. No, stop. Back away. Oh, God. Sing, <coughs> sing a no, song. Don't sing Please out stop. loud. It's bad enough. Sing I'm out I strong. I love Karen Carpenter. No, sing of good things, not bad. Sing of happy, not sad. Well, that's it from us this week. If you enjoyed listening to Liz Jones's Diary, the podcast, why not visit melplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. I'll be back next Sunday, but for now, I'm Liz Jones. And I'm Nick. Goodbye. Goodbye.